0: Keeps knocking at my brain Before I go insane I put my blow to my head And jump up in my bed Screaming out the words I dread I think I love you
1: I think I love
0: you This morning I woke up with this feeling I didn't know how to deal with And so I just decided To myself Hide it to myself and never talk about it. But didn't I go and shout it when you walked into the room? I think I love you.
2: everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lessing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. But today is one of our B-side episodes, where we get off the Bruce Springsteen train and we explore other musical heroes and idols and passions. And today I am joined by my wonderful friend, uh, Sarah Hickman. Hi Sarah, how are you?
3: Hey, Jesse. I'm thrilled to be here. That's how I am. I'm very excited about what's happening today with you.
2: Well, thanks. Now, Sarah is a musician in her own right, but uh, and I have been trying to get her on the show to talk about herself forever, but in typical <laughs> Sarah fashion, she had no interest, but um, she's like, yeah, I don't want to talk about my career. I'm like, but you're on The Tonight Show. You're on The Pat Sajak Show. <laughs> eh, that's boring, Jesse. <laughs> Uh, but I am going to get her on sometime, but today we want to talk about a loss in the music industry. Um, we both were kind of talking online about the loss of David Cassidy and Sarah sent me an email and said, Hey, Jesse, um, I want to be on your podcast to talk about David. I'm like, Oh yeah, that would be great because I, I, I'm feeling this loss too, So uh, we're going to talk about it. We're going to share some stories. And so I'm excited about doing that. But to start out with, Sarah, I start everyone kind of musical, their origin stories. Talk about growing up. Talk about what kind of music you listened to. Was your family (laughs) musical? And we'll go from there.
3: (laughs) Okay. uh, For your listeners, yes, I I am giddy with enthusiasm that I'm speaking with Jesse, who I've known a long, long time which is a story in itself, but um
2: I'm naturally giddy. And, and she's also going, I've not seen Jesse B. this way before.
3: <laughs> no, you sound very professional.
2: I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. it's, um,
3: oh. it's like getting to talk to someone in the NFL who's a color commentator.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. That's um, a very nice compliment.
3: <laughs> you're welcome. Go Cowboys. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, let's see. I grew up my... My mom and dad were visual artists. I grew up in Houston in a suburb called Sharpstown, and our house <laughs> was full of art. my My mom was a weaver, and we had a nine or twelve foot loom in the back room where she would shuttle, which is where you pass the yarn back and forth. Da 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 dun. She'd make these wall hangings, and she made three um, D sculptural pieces that hung from the ceiling. And then my dad was a painter. So he was always out in his studio. He converted the garage into a studio. And um, he would actually take baby food jars and mix his own acrylic paints. And he had them, he built shelves and there was walls and walls and walls of baby food jars full of all these exquisite colors. And then he would stretch his own canvases. So he would be out there painting and stretching canvases. So you can imagine growing up in a a very um, visual world where you had all these art supplies at your service. If you wanted to do something or God forbid, you said you were bored, you were handed clay or, or something to paint or something to draw on. So that was really great. We were the only (laughs) kids in the neighborhood who had artists for parents, as you can imagine. Um, So if we went to someone else's house, um, albeit the kids were really fun, but the, the homes themselves were, were pretty blank, pretty, pretty nondescript in terms of artistic um, enthusiasm. so kids would come over to our house a lot because we could do a lot of fun things. Um, And my mom was uh, very involved with us. And so when we were young, the kids in my neighborhood, we we put a band together and we were the Partridge family. So uh, the only other musicians in my family were my dad's parents, uh, my grandmother and grandpa grandpa, they had been in big swing bands. My grandma played piano, my grandfather played saxophone and clarinet, and they had toured around the United States. And so in the summer, I would go see my grandparents and make music with them, which was unbelievably great. But in in the regular day life, when I was with my friends, we would actually put costumes together. We had someone in our neighborhood, a little drum kit. Um, I had a guitar because I was playing guitar already at six. And we had a little, uh, like an organ, like a little keyboard organ that <laughs> sounded like a church <laughs> organ. And uh, we'd play, we'd actually practice in Janine's garage across the street. And then we'd put on shows for our moms because all our dads went to work back then. And my mom was very engaging. She was like, you can make your own tickets. So we'd draw up tickets and then we'd tape them together like they were in a ticket roll. And then we'd sell them for 25 cents to our moms. And we'd set up chairs in the backyard at Janine's. And then we'd put on a show and we, (laughs) we, I think we actually lip synced to the music. We pretended like we were playing it, but uh, I never got to be David Cassidy. And as a child, of course, that was, I had to be Chris, the drummer, which to this day is really exciting because I love drums, but I remember that the the pinnacle would have been to get to play David Cassidy, but that was always Janine. She, she had his hair, feathered brown (laughs) hair and, uh, and I had blonde hair, so I had to be Chris, but, um. Anyway, so my early my early understanding of music with my parents. To answer your question, our house um, <laughs> my parents had uh, this beautiful glass recording from Africa of African drumming that my dad brought back from when he was in the Marines. We had Bobby Gentry singing, "It was the Fourth of June another sleepy, dusty, delta day." So we had that recording. I think my mom had a recording of Rod McKuen reading poetry, and we had The Carpenters and Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, the cover where she's covered in whipped cream. I think that, the album's called Whipped Cream.
2: That is an iconic <laughs> was... uh, album cover, yes.
3: Yes, so you can imagine. That's the mix of music I grew up with, a folksy kind of bluesy singer, uh, tribal drumming from Africa, The Carpenters, and her beautiful Why do birds... Up. Her kind of silky, yeah. beautiful, um, lower voice. And then her bopper. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so, you know, I think other, you know, and I have AM and FM radio. So of course I was listening to all the hits yeah. today. So I got a lot of the Eagles and all that stuff too. But, um, so (laughs) here i was listening to the partridge family my very first album i got that was my own that my dad came home and pulled it out of a brown paper sack was david cassidy's cherish that was my very first (laughs) album so you know i had a lot of david cassidy when i was six and seven and i was very excited that led to john denver which is a whole other episode but yes so that's my early musical upbringing
2: yeah i will let my listeners know i'm i'm whether Sarah wants to or not she she sent me a t- she in her message she said that it was David Cassidy John Denver and Hart. Were the the holy trinity that led to her having a career, so I think we're going to do a series of episodes, each covering each of those, mm. so she can talk about her, tr- you know, her uh, things. Yeah, um, because
3: I did later in high school have a heart cover band, but I never did have a John Denver cover band. So yeah. maybe I need to finish my life out <laughs> with
2: that. <laughs> Absolutely, um, you know, I I love that um, because it can go either way you know, sometimes as a child, you can rebel against your parents um, and kind of go the opposite way. Maybe, you know, like you could have gone into law or engineering or something. (laughs) Yeah, banking. Uh, You know, then there's others that just, you know, you, you kind of, you grow up and And, you know, Sarah, you're also, in addition to being, you know, very musical, you also do a lot of art. Uh, You know, I can remember Mm -hmm. you painting the billboard there at Greenville Avenue. You know, that was the Simply video of you doing that. You know, you always, um, back in the day for the Sarah Hickman you know, newsletters, it wasn't an email, it was actually, and you'd have hand-drawn doodles, and so you've always been very expressive and very artistic, um, you know, so... Well, you and do- for
3: transparency, for transparency, I have to interrupt you. Yes. We must let the, the listeners know that you were, for a long time, the president of my fan club, which was an honor to have Jesse Jackson as the president <laughs> of my fan club.
2: Yeah, um, <laughs> I guess we should... To, uh, I'll take just for a moment. So I can't remember if it was 87 or 88. I don't remember the year. but um, And the reason I know is Sarah's first album came out in 89 and or 88. And in the liner notes were, uh, among other people, we were not the only people thanked, but there was Jesse, Linda, and Baby because Linda was <laughs> pregnant with Chris at the time. That's how long we've <laughs> known each other. But uh, we went to Ellen's Redo, and uh, and it was Miss Molly and the Passions. I don't think they were the Whips. Oh, I, always I think thought they it was the Miss Passions.
3: Molly. Oh, okay. Yeah, it okay, could have been the Whips Miss or the Molly Passions.
2: And the and, uh, <laughs> and uh, a band called Esta Chica was opening. <laughs> And uh, it was a bunch of guys and this wonderful, uh, beautiful um, female lead singer that had a... That looked a of,
3: lot like David Cassidy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that had a heck of a singing voice. Um, they oh, did, wow. They did. They did. And uh, you guys did versions of your songs. You guys did some covers. Um, we did
3: David Bowie covers and we did a lot of... Like Etta James and BB King and yeah. Albert Collins, so we were like a weird blues, yeah, <laughs> blues band with David Cassidy tinges.
2: <laughs> yes, and uh, so really. um, so after her set, she came up and thanked it was Rick and Jennifer, uh, Lynn and I, uh, which and thanked us for um, you know being there and. And being so enthusiastic. And we all forward saying how much we loved you guys. And and Sarah goes, why didn't y'all dance? And I said, I'm, I, I'm a Jackson and I don't have my brothers here. So I don't dance. And uh, <laughs> so everyone laughed. And so then during Miss Molly's set, there was one song and I have no idea. I wish I could remember the song. But um, Sarah came up, grabbed my hand and said, even you can dance to this song. And dragged me on the dance floor. And then... <laughs> Linda thought that was so funny and then said, you, you know, you so-and-so, you never dance. We're going to dance the rest of the night together. (laughs) Um, You know, and then. If
3: if Linda had just feathered her hair back then. (laughs) Exactly. That was the catch. You couldn't withstand the beauty of my hair.
2: (laughs) And so the very next day at Club Dada, there was some kind of festival going on. And uh, I was it. Is it David Gonzalez, the guitar player? Dave Gonzalez was the acoustical guitar <laughs> player? I don't, you know. this That's how Dave old Garza? it was. That Dave Garza, Garza. Garza. That's yeah. it. Yes, Dave Garza. And, and um,
3: this is funny. I have to tell you, last night I saw his drummer from Twang Twang Boom, who was my drummer for a long time, he's a dear friend, but I haven't really sat down with him in 23 years. And yeah. yesterday we caught up. So oh, here how I am funny. talking
2: to you. So and you're
3: missing David Garza.
2: Yeah, so then um sarah was um doing a solo show and um and it was it truly was two different almost personas um you know as the chica they were loud they were rocking it was a lot of fun and then she was a true singer songwriter where a lot of really beautiful songs and and a lot of great stories and a lot of laughter As you can tell, um, someone once said that Sarah Hickman shows were part therapy, part stand-up, and part (laughs) musical experiences, Uh, and it's (laughs) always been that way. So um, we'll get back to David Cassidy, but that's, I thought since we were kind of commenting about that, that's our origin story. And so, um, well, and
3: I have to say, that's really nice to know that you stopped me so early on. I didn't realize (laughs) you saw me two days in a row when you first met me. That's hilarious.
2: We did. (laughs) And then, um, the other thing Linda and I love, and we cannot believe we did this. Um, we, Sarah played every Monday night at club Dada. And so Linda and I would get home from work. Um, Eat something quickly, take an hour and a half nap, then get dressed, <laughs> drive to Club Dada because, you know, Sarah was doing a late show. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I this has been what almost thirty years ago, so I don't remember. But like ten to midnight or something, you know? And you wow, probably did everything. I do that? I think so. And That's uh, nine to eleven, I don't know. But anyway, it was it was late. And so um so Lynn and I went almost every Monday night because we just uh, we just fell in love with her and her music. And so um, we. it's been a long, strange journey that's filled with a lot of laughter.
3: Oh, you yeah. know, it's, it, I have to say, for those of you listening that don't know me and didn't get to experience the show, I really do love that that tagline was given to me because I think that, that aptly fits my my live experience, that, you know, I was very deeply ingrained by Carol Burnett early on. I, I really wanted to have my own variety show. And I think my live performances, especially solo, became that because I really liked to engage with the audience. And um, and I, I did have a lot of um, passion and sorrow I like to express through my music because there was this beautiful... Uh, kind of like a spider web that I could sense going out into the audience where we all became intertwined and and then I could also bring in something funny and silly through a song and I could even be political and talk about all the things that are very important to me about our planet and about how we treat one another so I think having that opportunity of all my life getting to be in front of people on a stage or through podcasts or television or radio and getting to express um, express myself and and being received so lovingly, I'm very grateful to that. I think, you know, it's certainly impacted me as a parent and it impacted me in my relationships and it impacted me as a 54-year-old woman now who can look back and go, wow, I know exactly what it feels like to be six years old and think, I want to live a life of music and then that's what I got to do. And I, it feels like, like totally yesterday. And yet here I am on the other side of the bridge and it's, and I'm really grateful to still know you, Jesse. And I'm very grateful that you have seen me through your eyes and you can express things that of course I don't know or remember. <laughs> yeah. And yet, wow, here we are on the other side of the bridge together too. That's really beautiful. Thank you for including me today. And,
0: well, yeah. and thank
3: you for all the times you were there in the shows or when we had Thanksgiving together, just outside of, my my uh, music world y- you became a very dear friend and, and you're like a brother to me so i'm very honored to know you all these years later thank you thank you
2: thank you well you are very welcome sarah and uh just a hint there may be uh, as i record this it's uh the saturday after thanksgiving and it's the 25th and i'm on my 30 days of gratitude post, you know like a lot of people do on facebook uh-huh. and uh um, Sarah Hickman may be the um, the item I'm grateful for today on Facebook. So I'm just saying maybe.
3: I like maybe. I like the, you keep it a
2: mystery. Yeah, keep it a mystery, right? <laughs> Don't so, get
3: my head too big now. <laughs>
2: okay, I won't. So um, you've always played music. Uh, you talked about you were you're already learning to play the guitar at six, and uh, you. Um, but talk about and and we'll go now to David Cassidy. Um, talk about when did you, did just, you happen to fall on the Partridge family show or talk about how you discovered that and what it meant to you as a young little Sarah. Well, that's
3: a really good question. You know, um, I think nowadays people binge watch television shows because they can, but when I was growing up in Houston, um, And when people were growing up in the seventies, you know, if the show was coming on, you only got to watch it then. So it was an experience, you know? So I remember my family, my sister, my mom, my dad, and I, on Friday nights, we would sit down and I believe it was in this order. I'm probably wrong, but I know we watched the Parches family. I believe the Brady Bunch was the same night. And then it was, uh, This sounds like we're watching five hours of television. (laughs) So I don't think this is right. But I believe we watched the Mary Tyler Moore show or the Bob Newhart show. And then it was Carol Burnett. So it was like a lot of music on Friday nights that I shared with my family, with the Partridge family. Sometimes the Brady Bunch sang always on the Carol Burnett show. Um, But I think my mom would pop popcorn. And this was, of course, in a real popcorn popper on the stove. She didn't, we didn't have all the, Amenities we have today in this world, but you know, we would sit around and we would laugh and we would have family time and and we would we would watch these shows. And as a child, it, um, it really instilled in me that you could make music together as a family. Albeit, my family of origin didn't make music so much with me, but my mom occasionally would go sit at the piano and play. Um, my dad would sing, and and my sister and I would sing. And for a while, I had a drum kit myself, so I would probably bang out some beats while my mom was playing the piano. But then to watch Carol Burnett have this variety show, I think, again, that really that altered the course of my life because I got a little Radio Shack cassette player, and I would go around the neighborhood and interview my friends and make up songs and, and actually have commercial breaks. And I still have those cassettes. Some of them appear on my album Misfits, some of the early songs I recorded, like Grandma's Feather Bed by by uh, John Denver.
2: I was going to (laughs) bring that up, uh, that I remember that from Misfits, yes.
3: Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, you know, um, the fact that I was getting to be visual and express myself uh, through my hands, making art, whether it was 3D art or, or drawing and painting, and then making music. My first guitar I got when I was six, and Literally after kindergarten, I would come home and I would go to my room. And I would get my guitar, my sweet little first guitar, and I would sit with my you know my Radio Shack player, and I would record myself playing the guitar and singing, interviewing myself, or sometimes you know how you used to record off the radio because you wanted to hear a song again, and uh, so I just couldn't wait to be with my guitar. My guitar was my best friend, and I just I I can't. I can't express to you what a sisterhood I have with my guitar, what a symbiotic relationship I have with a piece of wood with six strings that vibrate. I, I remember the day I learned a B7 chord, and I must have played that chord over and over. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And I had to use all of my fingers up on the top of the neck and the first and second fret. And I just couldn't believe that my hand could make this beautiful pattern across the strings. And I couldn't believe that when I laid my thumb down and, and wiped it across the strings, the tonality of the of the music, I just, to this day, the B7 chord to me is just phenomenal until I learned the G major 7 chord and then I thought I was badass because that was a bar chord. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, so yes. my, my, my guitar, I even wrote out a will when I was seven and I imagined George Burns would read it and I rolled it up in a scroll and I put it inside my guitar. You know, I... To this day, sometimes I'll turn the guitar upside down and a uh, little note to myself will fall out or a piece of a cookie or something. You know, it's just like yeah. my guitar and I were one.
2: You know, um, you were lucky enough to meet George Burns um, as part of your musical journey, and you were able to tell him in person how much he and, you know, his his career had meant to you. Um, I think that's beautiful. And, you know, I, I've read that, often about a musician and their guitar, the, um, the bind, you know, the way it's a, it binds you and and it's part of your life. And, and, um, you know, Bruce talked about a Bruce Springsteen, cause it's mandatory since it's a Bruce Springsteen podcast talked about that. He always thought of guitar as his tool, his tool of his trade Um, You know, it it was the same way that a hammer or a saw or something would look at. Um, But when he first got money, when he started, you know, like when Born in the USA went crazy and he had this money, he talks about his autobiography. He wanted beautiful guitars in every room. And he went and bought a lot of guitars because he loved them so much. That's
3: Amazing. I'm looking around, and I'm not Bruce Springsteen, so this is not a parallel, except for the fact that I'm looking at a guitar right here. I have two in the bathroom downstairs here. I'm looking at another one across by the dining table. As you go up in every room, there's either guitars or ukuleles. I mean, yeah, I I have so many guitars, and there is something about um, being able to look across at your beloved. And for me, and it sounds like this is true for Bruce, too— there's nothing finer than having your eyes rest on a guitar because you know what's going to come you know if you walk across the room and pick that guitar up you're in a relationship and you're making music and you can share that with other people who are listening but most of all it's the vibration between you and the guitar and you're you're wedded you're married together and that's that's it's all it's the closest thing to pregnancy I can describe you know that you're in relationship with this 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 i this love that was just especially for me, it's been my whole life I've been pregnant with my guitar. You know, I just it goes everywhere with me. I remember the first time I learned how to ride hands free on a bicycle, I would take my guitar and I would ride down the street playing my guitar while I was riding my bicycle. That's how close I was to my guitar.
2: Wow, that's a now as the dad in <laughs> yeah. me is like, Oh my God, that's dangerous. Why are you doing that, Sarah? <laughs> but that I, no, I, I had a through that well because it's and i'm going to overthink this but it's you know the freedom of a bicycle when we were kids and <laughs> yeah. then the freedom of of music <clears throat> and escaping and and sharing the joy you know you're combining these two you know creative escape items together i could have see why that would be amazing
3: yeah and you know uh Also, I have to throw this in here for a second. Uh, For a little girl, um, it was very empowering. I didn't know that word. Um, But my mom was all about, I could still hear her, she would say, you can do anything, you can set the world on fire. So I never questioned being a girl. You know, I just... For me, riding my bike was my horse. Like whenever my I got on my bike, I, I would pretend it was a horse because I loved horses. I always wanted to have a horse. I never have. Um, so not only was I very imaginative because my parents were creative, but here I was, this this little person, this person at six, seven, eight years old, riding my horse with my guitar in my hand, making music as I'm riding down the street into the unknown, which to me, the world, didn't seem big. It seemed like also I was part of the world and the world was part of me. So whatever I wanted to imagine, I was going to do it. There was nobody to tell me no. And that carried on uh, to this day. If I see something or hear something, it's never a how can I? It's when will I?
2: Yeah.
3: When will I get to the end of the block on this beautiful horse that's really a bicycle? While I'm making the song, I, I've i already gotten there. In my mind, I've already done it. It's just, you know, when will I do it? Oh, Not that's... how will I do it, because I can. I know I can. If I visualized it, 99% of the time, I make it true. Just like, as you said, with George Burns. I started pen with him when I was a teenager, and then, again, when will I meet George Burns? And then I did.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned your cassette player. Um, I also had a cassette player. And, um, you know, the one that looks like a box and you push play and record at the same time. One of the things I can remember recording is the true story is, um, a Partridge family episode. You know, I put it next to my TV hit play (laughs) and record because I love that show so much. And, you know, I was, um, still am to a lot of degrees, short, fat white kid, Um, And David Cassidy, you know, I was born in 59. So, you know, the 70s when you're getting this and you know, I'm just getting 10 or 11. And from my perspective, there was no one cooler than David Cassidy. I I just thought he was just the ultimate of cool. I would buy, you know, Tiger Beat and Team Beat Embarrassed because I know their market was built for teenage girls. But I had to find out about him and and you know Donny Osmond and you know because he was the other cool guy you know wow I mean you know he sang with his <laughs> brothers he was the youngest and he got to do lead singing and you know David Cassidy just this beautiful voice and you know the
3: hair yeah. and the belt buckle and the bell bottom pants and yeah this. he was the so puka he, was, he was the early version of Guns and Roses you know he had that snaky kind of Lift movement. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and you know what's interesting is um, I have so many things to tell you, and I hope I get them all in, but, uh, yeah, I did the same thing. I would definitely get my cassette recorded and record TV shows because, again, as we talked about, you didn't get to see them again. There wasn't right. another way they were going to show up. So that was your way of VHSing something back then. Um, you know, you talk about Donny Osmond, and it's funny because, of course, yeah, who didn't love Donny Osmond? Um, and then getting to meet him several years later, uh, and do a show with him. And I brought these cupcakes for the crew because nobody ever acknowledges the crew, the sound people, the light people, the staging people. And it was a big uh, show called, uh, Mark and Brian in Los Angeles. And we all had to be there like crazy hour, like four in the morning because it was a Christmas show. And it was me, Donny Osmond, Mel Tower Power Horns. Jack Plants who "The Night Before Christmas. Um, I can't think of that guy He's a blind country singer who sits at the piano. Who's Ronnie Millsap. It? Ronnie Millsap and um, Meat Love was on the bill. Wow. Anyway, so thought... Where
2: is there a recording of this? I need to see the um, show.
3: <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm sure there is a visual, but I know that there's probably audio somewhere out there. Anyway, so I had this incredible band, and I think I I had two drummers, Jim Keltner and another famous drummer who I can't think of right now, but it was crazy. So, yeah, and I had the Tower of Power Horns as my backup. So, anyway, I came with these cupcakes because I was always concerned that everyone felt like they were equal and everyone was um, appreciated. And I got there, and Donnie Austin came up, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I can't. First of all, I couldn't believe I was on the same bill. Like, somewhere my name was showing up with all these
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: And, and he came up and he goes, "Oh, I love cupcakes." I said, "Well, I made these from scratch." And he's like, oh, "Can I have one?" I was like, oh, "Of course, you can have one. You're Donny Osmond." So he took one, and that for me was that's all I needed. You know, like, oh my gosh. So then, uh, about forget a half hour winning. He came forget.
2: Back. I'm going to pause you right there. Forget winning a Grammy. You know, I don't need an <laughs> Emmy. You know, Donny Osmond wanted one of my cupcakes. Life is good. <laughs> I
3: know. It sounds so sultry, doesn't it? So he came back and he goes, Those are the best cupcakes I've ever had. Can I have another one? I said, Yes, if I can have the little paper cupcake holder back for me. And he said, Sure. So he gave me that and I gave him another cupcake because, and I never did it, and I wish I had. I was going to take that little wadded up piece of paper from the cupcake. And I was going to put it in like Lucite and have it, you know, suspended <laughs> for all time in a cube of Lucite. Uh, and it was going to say, Donnie
2: Osmond ate my cupcakes. And like, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs>
3: so I got to talk to him twice about my cupcakes, which sounds so sexy.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, the things that sound dirty that aren't. Um, now, were you oh, ever. I... Yeah, go ahead.
3: Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, just to tie in Bruce Spoonstein here. I recently was uh, going through my catalog of you know press and photos and memories and music and vinyl and all the stuff I've gotten to produce over the years, and I donated it to rice University where they they put your stuff in um what's it called when they, they uh they keep your stuff forever and people can go see it
2: it's, right it's, you know, um I'm drawing a blank too, but yes you've donated anyway. yeah,
3: yeah, so I donated all my historical elements um, to Rice University. And while I was going through copious amounts of photographs, I came upon one that Max Weinberg was my drummer. And that also made me think of you, Jesse, because I don't know how I forgot that Max Max Weinberg played with me. But I I remember I I was like, oh, my God, I took a picture on my phone and I sent it to you. To say, yeah. is it, this is Max Weinberg, right? <laughs> yes.
2: Well, uh, you. So that's also, my tie-in with Bruce. Well, and you opened for him once.
3: Oh, that's right. At uh oh, what's that place? The, the Don- Bronco Bowl, right? Uh, the Bronco Bowl, right? Yeah he he kind of did a surprise. I don't know if he was touring the United States or he just yeah. happened to be in town, but I think it was <clears throat> kind of an he, he did a, a surprise show, or I don't really. It's very. I don't know why like it's so uh, so milky for me, but I remember. Yeah, I went and I played a couple songs, and then he came out and played, and it was it was um, it wasn't packed. It was like I don't know if he was on a radio tour, but there was a lot of people there, but it, yeah. it seemed like it was a secret show.
2: <clears throat> but you said you didn't get to talk to him or anything. You just. Um...
3: No, I don't know if somebody called me up and said, hey, we need you." I think the deal was, we need to come play a couple songs for this this artist. And I don't think they even told me who it was. And I was like, okay, you know, because back then I just was, whenever I got to make music, I was there. Yeah, And I went over to the Bronco Bowl, which was exciting in itself, and I went and I played, and there was people there, but it wasn't like... It wasn't packed, so I was really confused about who it was. And then I went and sat down to see who it was, and out came Bruce Springsteen. And it was like all the people that knew it was him, so people weren't like freaking out, but it was almost almost sacred. Like everybody kind of gathered up next to the stage, and he was playing. That's what I remember. And I don't remember how long I stayed. I don't remember if he just did like four or five songs, and then he left. I just remember the sacredness of, oh my God, it's Bruce Springsteen. That's what I remember.
2: That is awesome. (laughs) Now... Were you ever lucky enough to meet David?
3: No, Cassidy. and let me tell you, it's really interesting that you say that because uh, he came out with an. Um, maybe he came out with several albums because I didn't really, you know, once I was an adult, I wasn't really paying that much attention to him. Right. I know he was doing the multicolored coat on Broadway and stuff, but I I didn't really think about oh now I could use my infamy to have my manager call his manager. I could actually go sit down and talk. I could have probably done a duet with him had I thought about it, but I just, it's almost like uh, I went from my very first concert was David Cassidy front row, middle seat tickets. My mom took me and my sister and some kids, the kids from our neighborhood in our station wagon. And I saw David Cassidy perform and my sister's here for Thanksgiving. And we were just talking about how exciting that, that concert was. Um, And I got a poster of david cassidy that was very large i'm going to say it was like two by three feet or something as i grew up i remember this is so sacrilegious but i remember i got to a point where i was getting into the rolling stones and david cassidy was corny so i put big x's in the teeth of his smile and i remember the feeling of he's this is so done i'm not into him anymore and at the same time i remember this little sadness inside me as I drew the X's on his teeth like how horrible am I and I wish I still had that poster and I wish I'd never X'd him but I think from that point on I never really paid attention to David Cassidy so let me zoom ahead to many 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 years later I believe and I could be wrong but I believe Robin Macy my friend who uh, founded the Dixie Chicks and then was in domestic science club with me and I only name drop what she's done because she's sure. deserving and an amazing Absolutely. musician in her own right. I believe she met him cause she was a DJ for KERA as well. And she, I think met David Cassidy and brought me a napkin that he used. Like she, I don't know if he wiped his mouth with it or what. And I remember getting it and going, Oh my God, this is amazing. And this was after I'd been a musician. So this would have been probably in 93 or 94 when she gave it to me. Um, you know, and even then I could have probably said, oh, you're going to meet him. Can I come meet him? But it just wasn't in my mindset. So when he passed away the other day, you know, I just I I, I, I learned a lot about him that I never knew. Like I never knew that David Cassidy was touring the world and playing coliseums, sold out Coliseums and that there was Cassidy mania. I didn't know all that. I didn't know that, you know, a young girl got trampled in London. I didn't know that he, he retired and he he went away from music because he felt so overwhelmed by it because I just, I was a young girl when I loved him and I, I was crazy about him, but I wasn't a young girl who was, I mean, I was like you, I would go get tiger boot and I had pictures of him and stuff, but I, I didn't have that awareness because my parents didn't turn on the TV and we weren't watching the news and they weren't saying, David Cassidy today in Australia, you know, I had a sold out show where hundreds of thousands of people were freaking out that just, you know, it wasn't like the internet today where you knew everything about everybody. You kind of just hoped and dreamed and, 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 just got schmoopy over someone, but I didn't, you know, you didn't have access to their world like you do now. So only now am I finding out all the stuff about David Cassidy.
2: (sighs) You know, because I have access. Um, Um, so I'm a little bit similar, but also kind of, um, I, I was a little bit of a David Cassidy apologist, um, because he was my first, you know, boy crush that I can remember that I just wanted to be him and he was so cool. Um, like when he did the, um, you know, he did an episode of Police Story where he played an undercover cop and, you know, mm-hmm. so he went and he had a series on that and it kind of 21 Jump Street was kind of a, not a literal, but kind of a spiritual um, kind of, um, Re, a reboot, a reboot of that. You know the idea of you look young enough, you could go into high school and and do um, undercover work. Um, I mm-hmm. remember seeing really happy when he was on Broadway. Um, mm-hmm. You know he did Blood Brothers with his uh, brother. You know he was in uh, Yankee duty You know he did Little Johnny Jones, which was on about jo- George M. Cohen. Um, did Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Um, you know, I know he did a big a Las Vegas show that he was involved with a lot. Um, so I always felt like, yeah, see, he's not just a pretty face. He's not just a teen oh. idol. He is someone that was very talented, and uh, so I always kind of, you know, cheered for him and. Um so I was and I do know he had a very uh troubled life. Um mm-hmm. and I think so, you know the, I and and I'm not making excuses I'm just saying you know getting that kind of success that early um you it takes a very special person not to let that mess you up. Don't you think?
3: Yes, I think <clears throat> you know it's very rare to experience that kind of success, success, very, very rare. You know, um, one of our daughters is dating uh, a celebrity right now, and it's interesting to be around him because he's very well-known, and I had not experienced the movie that he's in that gave him his moniker, Uh, so and I didn't want to see it until I got to know him, which was really nice because then there wasn't this kind of like – starry shine around him he was just a guy and then i saw it about six months after i knew him and i was like oh that's a good movie yeah i can see that that's a beautiful guy um but seeing you know like the amount of success i had i was in my 20s if you look at uh someone like david cassidy who sort of grew up in it because i think he was 19 or 20 when he started doing the partridge family i think so um Yeah. You know, all of a sudden you go from having a dream, you're on your bike playing your guitar and you can see the end of the block, you know, I'm going to get to the end of the block. But this is, you got on your bike and all of a sudden you're at the end of the block. There's no, there's no in between. You're suddenly at the end of the block. So you haven't had that that time to ride your bike to the end of the block and then see all the different neighbors yards and experience all the different dogs and all the different people saying, hi, you're just at the end of the block. And all of a sudden everybody knows you, all the dogs know you, all the yards are all around you. It's very um, titillating, but it's also very overwhelming. And it does take, I think that experience from starting and ending all the stuff in between prepares you for the end so that you can handle that kind of wealth and fame um, more readily, if you're a young person and your brain is still forming and your ideas are still forming, and all of a sudden you're just this is thrust upon you. It twists your sense of how to handle it because it is a tsunami. People don't understand. You know, they see the glitz and the glamour and oh my god, you've got money and you can have all these houses and you get to travel the world, but they don't know how. How it's just constant. There is no rest from it when it's something like with David Cassidy or Madonna or Bruce Springsteen. Now Bruce Springsteen, I would say, is a little different because he was a little older and he'd been working and working and working and working and working and working, right? So he has an idea. But even with a Bruce Springsteen or a David Cassidy, you can't. You can't. I mean, the biggest audience I ever played for was ninety thousand people. I couldn't even see faces. All I saw was it's like a. It's just a sea of people. It's actually right. is a sea of people. So the intimacy is gone and it's this huge amount of energy coming at you. So to have that, like David Cassidy going around the world and playing in coliseums of, let's just say, you know, 20 to 50,000 young 14 year old girls screaming their hormones at you and you get in a car where you don't even know the driver and and then you go to a hotel, and there's no consistency, there's no, there's no familiarity of faces except your assistant and your manager, your bubble gets very, very, very small, and outside of that bubble is, yes, a lot of excitement, but a lot of danger and a lot of unknown, and that really messes with you.
2: It, um, couple, um, yeah, a couple of so, things, Sarah. Um, one, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. A couple of examples, and this is certainly not – comparable but um, I used to do I still do um, you know we'll have meetings at my job where um, Mm -hmm. you know um, I'm you know it's a four or five hour meeting and I'm I'm hosting the meeting I'm running the meeting you know I'm on stage uh, you know in front of the podium talking about people and delivering the topics and you know kind of coordinating everything and at the end I come home and you know, Linda and Chris Chris would go, what's going on? And um, Linda say, it's hard to be on for five hours. And so it's draining. Yeah. So yes. I'm just like 30 people, you know, that I work with. You know, can you, uh-huh. and you can imagine, I know at the end of a show, you have a lot of energy, but you're also tired because you've given great artists give of themselves as they're performing.
3: Yes and and it's you know it's um I can understand when, okay so when i was doing it all the time like when i was on a major label and they send you out on a yeah. tour and you're doing radio and then if you're getting up early in the morning to go do tv you go do TV, then you do a day of radio, then you get on stage and you're in front of people. And then in my case, I like to come out after show and find things and talk to people. And then you get back on the bus and then you go to this hotel or you're on the bus all night sleeping. And then next morning you're at a TV show. You know, uh, in between there, you need to rest and you need to shower. And you need, especially as a woman, you're going to have to put on makeup and fix your hair and, and look adorable. Uh, you know, that's all of it's about energy. Yeah. So if you you know if you're constantly giving that energy away no matter how smart you are or how prepared you are there's nothing like it. And so if you're constantly giving that away it's you know that's why you always hear about people becoming alcoholics or doing drugs or, or you know using sex to fill them up. It's because there's no quiet time for you to rehabilitate. There's no time for you to fill yourself up. There's not a magical potion of energy you can drink you know coffee is not going to do it taking a shower is not going to do it because you're in essence giving all of your skin and your organs and your heart and your mind and every little little cell of your being away so you're constantly having to renegotiate with yourself how you're going to get up and go do all this stuff all day it's exhausting it's exhilarating so you're having this sense of high because you're 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 thriving on this energy, but it's exhausting because it's not like, it's not like a nine to five job. Every moment is different because it's a different interviewer. It's a different group of people wanting you to, to sign these posters. And it's, it's, it's a, an exhilarating drowning. That's what it's like. It's an exhilarating drowning.
2: And, um, I've, I've talked to no about, matter how, how yeah, oh, I'm sorry. oh
3: no matter how you know how to swim, that water that's keeping you up is also pulling you under so all the people that love you and all the people that want stuff from you and, and you know returning phone calls and making sure your manager has this information and your manager gives this information to you you're still one person in a sea of people wanting to pull you under they love you so much they don't realize pulling you under is going to extinguish your flame
2: yeah so, uh, yeah and the other point sarah and I know you will uh, agree with this is, you know, I've talked to a lot of people at, um, comic conventions and, and sci-fi conventions that I attend. And my good friend Tom Zoller talks about this and I've talked to other people, you know, as you tour and even, you know, like you go to Boston for a comic convention, you know, you're there three days, but you really just see the hotel and the convention center. You know, you don't exactly. get to experience the city. You don't get to, you just, you know, you, you wake up, you, you know, you get something to eat, you go to the convention floor, you're on all day, you know, selling your art or talking about your book you're writing or, you know, maybe in a panel doing a and A and then, you know, you're, then you go get something to eat and then you maybe go to the hotel bar and have something to drink or visit with other people at the convention but if you're a megastar you can't even do that because nope. um, you know because you're just going to be overwhelmed and I think that's one of the as we get on a tangent but one of the reasons Dragon Con which is in Atlanta every Labor Day um, is so popular is that um, it's the culture is that if you run into um, you know a, you know a celebrity. Let's you know let's uh-huh. let let you know let's talk about you know. Um, I was I didn't get to meet her, but Katie Cassidy is now you know in Arrow and she's you know a celebrity. If you catch is her she in the bar, to David Cassidy. Yeah, she is yeah, David's sister. sister. Yeah, he, it's his oh, daughter. Yeah. yeah, that's his daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, so if she's there. Um, Or, you know, these other celebrities at Dragon Con, no one ever asks for their autograph when they're off there. They just laugh with them and joke with them. And um, so, but the rest of the time, you can't, you know, you're in the hotel room or you're at your venue. And there's nothing Mm -hmm. you aren't getting to enjoy, you know, the beauty of, oh, let's see how beautiful chinatown is in san francisco nope i'm gonna be at the venue then we go to the hotel then as you said i'm back on the bus and just i uh, rinse repeat rinse repeat
3: yeah so the very fruits of your labor prevent you from enjoying the fruits of your labor because right. you're constantly making the fruits of your labor and you're enjoying them because you know you're getting to 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 be creative in front of people and share the things that you've made in that sense but, Right. If the fruits of your labor are at arm's length at all times. You don't get – yeah, exactly. You can't go walk around because you'll be mom. Yeah. You can't – you know so and right. plus there's just no time. So, yeah, I, I can think of a million times where people said, oh, did you like some Seattle or what did you think of London? And I'm like, well,
2: I don't know. I yeah. didn't really see it. It was dark. Yeah. Now, you've <laughs> already mentioned – Yeah, you've already mentioned the Chica, but is there other ways? Obviously, um, for those of you who have heard this episode – uh, we will be starting with Sarah's version of I Think I Love You. Um, so I know you've recorded I Think I Love You, but is there other influences that David and the Partridge family had on your music?
3: Well, you know, that's really interesting. Um, uh, Thanksgiving night, we were driving home from my mother in law's, and I was um, making um uh, play, I was doing the music list in the car on the drive home, and my sister's here. So I made everything around 70s music, so I picked the Partridge Family theme song as the closing song as we drove up to our house, and I hadn't heard it, I don't know, since I was a kid. And at the end, they do this really cool um, timing where they flip the end around the tagline, as you would say, three, three times, three or four times around, and all of a sudden, I turned to my husband, Lance, and I said, wow, that's where I got the idea for the way I jump the ending of we are each other's angels because I do this turnaround that when I do it live, I have to explain to people. Now at the end, you're going to do this thing. And then people forget. And then they, they get confused. They start singing on my line, but really what they need to do is start this whole new line. And I said, I got that from this Partridge family song. And I never realized it till just now. That's, how beautiful things are when you're a child that they're ingrained they're in your mind and then they they show up in ways you wouldn't expect and had we not all been driving home and had David Cassidy not you know just passed away I don't know that I would have actually listened to that theme song again and it was really beautiful being in the bus so to speak with my family so to speak and we're all singing this song and it brought me a lot of joy to know that inside me was a little bit of Partridge Family when I was producing that song without me knowing it. You know, that seed had been set a long time ago and showed up in my music.
2: You know, um, an early uh, review of your music talked about that um, unlike, um, and I'm not obviously belittling the great Joni Mitchell, but a career said, Sarah, unlike Joni Mitchell, like oh things are horrible. Um, Sarah's music is yeah you broke my heart, but you know what? I'm gonna be okay, and it's gonna take me a little <laughs> bit, but you know I- I'm gonna love again. There is a an, an optimism on even your saddest songs, and I think that's got to be partly because of you know the Partridge Family and that that family and optimism.
3: Yeah. You know, that's a, I like that segue. That's really sweet. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, that's an inherent thing that I don't really see the silver lining that's a- apparent to other people in my music. And I'm grateful when people have written music critiques of my songs and sensibilities and that's what they find. That makes me so happy because I don't think we, we always know our legacy and I feel blessed that I've been in a world that I loved where I got feedback on what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, I would agree with that. I think I always did try to, to find the, to find that the end of the block, so to speak, I could see the end of the block, even though at the beginning of the block, it might seem far away. I knew I was going to get there somehow. So if that's what my songs remind people of, or, or you know, people here, then that makes me really happy because I definitely think the Partridge family always ended on a happy note, you know, even if it was a serious episode, like, like Reuben Kincaid had some bad news for everybody. They're, they'd dog it on the bus, and they'd still be singing at the end. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah I think so. And um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Um, it's early, but um, one of Linda's, it's my wife's favorite lyrics, and I'm, I'm hoping you can fill it in, is you have... Um, you know, you talk about the thorns, you know, the, the roses and the flowers with the oh, thorns. Oh, yeah. yeah. Woman waiting to
3: happen. Woman yes. Waiting to happen.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah,
3: so I sing, where the flowers replace the thorns.
2: Yes. And I think that sums up a lot of not just your music, but, you know, uh, that is the beauty of music across the world is that, um, you know, we do – um, you know the flowers do replace the thorns. There is um, something good happening, and and um, I especially think that's important. And we won't get too political, though. I will. We should do an episode of just politics. Um, there is a there is a sense of you know people being depressed and and feeling like there is no hope and. And I believe you and others and, and Linda and I are trying to do our share of like, no, there, you know, there, you know, we can resist, we can push for our people to do better and expect better from each other.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I, I often quote, and I know you didn't write, we are each other's angels. It, in a lot of ways, it became one of your staples live. I do quote that a lot. I said, we are each other's angels. We have to be there for each other.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I think I learned the song because my friend Kathy Turner was getting married and she asked me to learn We Are Each Other's Angels and I never heard it. And I listened to it and it's a song written by the very prolific and great Chuck Brodsky. And I remember the last verse was all about finding manna out in the desert. And to me, (laughs) uh, I thought, well, this doesn't come around. This, this song. So I called Chuck and I said, I'm writing... A new verse for the end I hope that's okay And this was my first time I ever talked to him And he was like, uh, okay So I sent him when I finished it, last verse And he was like, oh, wow, yeah, okay Because in the end of the song You've become an angel And I talk about, you know Well, I reached my destination God finally took me home I met 10,000 angels Where he made me one of his own
0: But we are each other's angels oh and we meet when it is time oh, We keep each other going And we show each other signs destination Yeah, I finally made it home God sent 10,000 angels To make me one of his own But we are each other's angels And we meet when it is time Oh We keep each other going And we show each other signs Each other's angels Oh, we are each other's angels Oh, we are each other's angels And we meet when it is time Oh, we are each other's angels Are each Ooh. Oh, we are each other's angels. Oh we, each other's angels. oh, we are 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 each other's angels.
3: and so you know i think that's unheard of you know or maybe it happens but i'm very grateful to chuck that he didn't go no that's weird he was like oh okay
2: yeah i mean that is really nice to say (laughs) first off i'm sure he 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 took it the right way like oh everyone's an editor you know (laughs) everyone has to (laughs) go everyone's a critic (laughs) yeah exactly but i do um you know when you talk about that, and, and it is such a strong ending and a, and a, a joyful ending. Um, it is truly. Um, I've told this to you before. Um, which, by the way, there is a tie-in. Uh, David Cassidy was the first person to record "I Write the Songs." Uh, isn't
3: that amazing i didn't know that so recently yeah
2: and so and bruce johnston who wrote the song helped produce it and then of course barry manilow recorded it and in a lot of ways um it is um one of his most signature songs that he didn't write and i always thought the same thing about we are each other's angels is one of your it it is such a sarah hickman song that wasn't written by sarah hickman (laughs) You know, exactly. So, yeah. And I
3: have to, you know, I'm constantly trying to, you know, people go, Oh, I love your song. And then I have to go, well, it's not my song. It's Chuck Brodsky. So I'm constantly trying to say Chuck Brodsky, this Chuck Brodsky, that, yes. because you know, and, and I think I think Kathy Matea recorded other people have recorded it. I don't yeah. know if they used my verse at the end or his verse. But, um, yes, it is interesting how people will relate a song to the person who sang it.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
3: in the, you know, in a way that it's a beautiful thing because uh, that's the power as you were saying, of music, of lyrics, yeah. is that people suddenly become family. We become each other's angels. And I think Chuck certainly nailed it on the head. You know, he just, I don't think there's an, another song that encapsulates it as well. And I'm really surprised that song hasn't taken off, you know, like how Batmobile t- or even Barry Manilow, they take songs and suddenly... Yeah. feel they- really grateful to my friend Kathy for introducing me to that song because it certainly was a beautiful way for me to always in my shows and have everybody singing and people going out into that good night after the show, feeling like they've been lifted up. I mean, nothing makes me happier than giving people hope. And, um, that's certainly what Chuck gave the world. And that song goes everywhere. I mean, I'm just amazed at the depth of that song. It's a a great, great song waiting to happen.
2: (laughs) And you know, it is, as someone who's been in the audience many times, there is that, um, there is a spirit that descends and it becomes a little bit more than poor David's pub or wherever you're playing, you know, it becomes kind of this almost sanctuary of love, you know, and there is that feeling of all being together. So totally agree. Um, absolutely wonderful moment. Um, Sarah, I've kept you over an hour. I did not mean to do that, uh, but thank you so much. So uh, we're going to any final thoughts you want to share about David? And then I have a few things I'm going to share. I posted on a Facebook page, and about six or seven people uh, posted their thoughts, so I'm going to read some of them. Uh, so you, I'll give you a few minutes to think about your thoughts. We're going to close with you, but I'll share these. A Shirley Wilson said, He was a gentle, caring person with a lovely singing voice, cheered me up when I was sad. Mary Lou Calderon said, When he sang, he looked at the camera or audience like he could be singing directly to each of us personally. Julie Gooden, he had the most beautiful green piercing eyes. You could see through to his soul, a loving heart, and he loved his fans so much, never to be forgotten, and loved forever. He is tucked away now in a little corner of my heart forever. Thank you, Judy. That was beautiful. My wonderful sister said... Uh, Rita Jackson Hudson, I think my first Teen Beat magazine had David Cassidy on the cover. So fun as a young teenager dreaming about those charming young heartthrobs. Rest in peace, Mr. Cassidy. Glenn Mitchell said, I loved David for 47 years. His amazing talents were never really acknowledged, at least us fans all feel. He gave his all to us and ultimately paid the price. Never be another. Saw David at Shawfield in Glasgow in 74 and Edinburgh in 85. Will always be in my heart. Jeannie Hitchcock said David brought us. He was so talented, gorgeous, and loving. He was brought cheer to so many of us. No one will ever forget him. Sharon Hughes says many things, but I loved how he wrote and sang a song about his beloved dog, Ricky. And then Gail Alan uh, Murphy Mock said he was soft spoken through unassuming, brilliant human being. And Alina Morez said David was all about love, whether it be his radiant good looks and charm that made the girls wild and chase him after him for that one kiss or his songs of love and cherish. He is a staple in my heart. His eyes cast a spell on me many years ago that cannot be broken. I will never forget him. I miss him dearly. I love him still. The music stopped the day he died. Rest in peace, David. Thank you. Those are all beautiful. What more do you want out of a musician, right? Oh Yes, I think, you know,
3: especially when we're children and we lock on to someone that inspires us, you know, and reminds us how important we are, that, you know, I don't think there's a better way to leave this planet than to lift people up. You know, whether it, you've lifted up one person or thousands or millions of people, I mean, I, I really believe that God or spirit or, you know, uh, whatever that energy is that humans can translate to each other and to even to animals, you know, what's, what's better than leaving a sacred footprint of hope, you know, and... So I'm really grateful to David Cassidy and to get to sit in front of the TV once a week and to be lifted up by him. And I, I, I hope that he took that with him. It sounds like when he was on his deathbed, surrounded by his loved ones, I'm sure he knew that he, he came into this existence and he left it better, you know, because of who he was. Um, so I'd like to say thank you, David Cassidy. I wouldn't be sitting on the sofa talking to Jesse Jackson doing a podcast if you hadn't been a part of my early footprint if you hadn't come into my home once a week and and taught me that i can make music
2: that's awesome um sarah if someone wants to reach you how can they what do you are you on twitter i'm everywhere (laughs) yes
3: (laughs) yes i'm on twitter i don't really I do Twitter through Facebook so when I'm posting okay. on Twitter it's through my Facebook. Uh really the best way is you can Facebook message me. I have a music page and then I have a, a private page um in the uh, uh or they can go to www.sarahickman.com. Sarah com. I'm very accessible and I'm very grateful when people write me I try to get back to them very quickly so.
2: Yeah. And uh yeah. I I recommend all of Sarah's um releases uh there are but misfits is the one that has um the uh i think i love you cover um and it's in misfits is a fun little cd i um equal scary <laughs> people might be the best to start out with but in misfits it truly is kind of a um the buffet hot of pod. Sarah great hot pods, yes, of just all these different things. So uh yeah. And, yeah. and I would love to hear what you think about Sarah's music. And if you want to share, I can be reached at um at uh Jesse Jackson DFW. The show has a Twitter at Set Lusting Bruce. Uh, our Gmail address is setlustingbruce at gmail.com. Please go rate and review us on iTunes. It's how people find us. Sarah, this has just been a joy. Uh, we'll have to do this again maybe after the holidays. We'll set up and do another time because um, I just can think of so many topics we could talk about. I, I'd love to hear the experiences of you being on, you know, I, I know the story of you being on Johnny Carson, but I think that's a great story. Pat Sajak, you know, a lot of other different things. You were on Rick Dees. You know, you, um, you've you had a, a lovely career, and uh, you've moved on to a new adventure. Uh, do you want to plug uh, the B&B? Sure.
3: Um, my husband and I recently opened a B&B down in Palacios, Texas, which is on Matagorda Bay in Texas. Um, the B&B is right on the bay, so you can walk outside and go kayaking immediately or fishing or bird watching. Uh, Palacios is the number one migratory path in the United States of birds, so you can see all kinds of different birds. And um, you can go to www.thenestofpalacios, and Palacios is spelled P-A-L-A-C-I-O-S, Palacios, but they pronounce it Palacios, Palacios thenestofpalacios.com, and you can book rooms through that. And, um, yes, we'd love to see you. It's a very relaxing, beautiful place. If you want to be in nature, come to Palacios.
2: Yeah, and I will include both links in the show note. Um, Sarah? You know I love you. You, We are so blessed that you've been part of our family for so many years, and and you are just a joy to talk to. Um, So thank you.
3: Thank you. And um, just, again, what an honor, Jesse. Thank you for making my life all the better. I really appreciate you, and Linda and Chris, thank you for this gift of time.
2: All right, so here we're going to end with, uh, Now the summer's over, and I find myself alone with only memories of you. I was so in love I couldn't see because I was living in a world of make-believe. But now you've gone. I'm just a daydreamer. I'm walking in the rain. Chasing after rainbows I may never find again. Life is much too beautiful to live it all alone. And that's David Cassidy's Daydreamer. And I am glad I'm not alone. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, Sarah. We'll talk to you soon. The song that
0: we're singing Come on, get happy A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing We'll make you happy We had a dream we'd go traveling together We'd spend a little love and, and it we'll keep moving on Something always happens whenever we're together We get a happy feeling when and we're, we're singing, singing a song there's a song that we're singing, come on get happy, a whole lot of love and it's what we'll be bringing, we'll make you happy, we'll make you happy,
2: we'll make you happy. And there we go.
3: Hey, and I have a bonus for you. Okay. I did a radio show. Um, that David Cassidy also did. I didn't get to meet him, but I did get <laughs> the outgoing phone message that he made. And yeah. it's, it's, it's very David Cassidy. I'll send it to you and you can Good. insert it if you want. Or you can yeah, put yeah, it on your phone. That'd, yeah, that'd yeah, be perfect. It's pretty, it's pretty cute. And cool. he says his name, so I'll send that to you. Mm-hmm.
1: Hi. Uh, nobody's here, of course. Uh, they're probably out doing something that you wouldn't be doing. Uh, this is David Cassidy. So if you'd like to leave a message, um, do it now.